Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Oh, well, it is good to be together today, Emmanuel Faith, isn't it? If you're joining us online, want if you're over in the chapel, we are really glad that you are here as well. We are on week four of a series that we're calling This Is Us. And in week one, we said that we are a mission, and our mission is to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus, to live sent just as Jesus was sent by the Father. Week two, we said we are a hospital, that we want to be a group of people who provide hope and healing and help people move toward wholeness. Last week, we said that we're a temple. We are a worshiping community who worship in spirit and in truth. And today, we're going to explore this idea that we are a family. And just as a side note, if if some of these um, identity characteristics that we're talking about seem more aspirational than actual, you're exactly dialed in. They are. That they're an invitation into something maybe that's a little bit new or fresh or, or different. A political analyst and professor at George Mason University, Bill Schneider, said that the U.S. right now is more divided than it's been since the Civil War. Think about that for just a moment. Now, now there have always been divisions. It's a, it's a part of being human. I mean, there, there are divisions like, like some people who like pineapple on pizza, and then there are people who have taste buds, right? So, um, there, are, there, there are divisions where... Um, <laughs> Uh, just saying, just saying. Okay, there's, there's some people, you know, they, they, like the, they like the Raiders or they like the Chargers. And then there's some people who like God's team, the Broncos. Um, yeah, there are, there are, I mean, there's, you know, you got PC users and you've got Mac users. You got people who love Better Buzz and people who like Starbucks. You have Republicans and you have... Democrats. I mean, part of dividing into groups is almost part of what it means to be human. But it seems like the moment that we're living in is a bit unique. See, see our bifurcated world is permeated with digital propaganda that creates a very real relational divide amongst people. See, we've always naturally surrounded ourselves with people that we agree with and that we think alike and that we have sort of an affinity towards. But now, our digital world is creating an even thicker divide. It was a 2015 article where uh, the um, Fast Company magazine wrote an article about what they called the filter bubble. And here's what the filter bubble essentially means. That you are being tracked digitally... And that online you are getting information that people think you will already agree with. Did you know that? So you get news articles, you get information, they get pumped to your social media feeds, get pumped to your inbox, that get in front of you based on what people think you will go, absolutely, amen, 
And so one of the things that's happening in our cultural moment is the us versus them, the groupings, the the tribes, or whatever you want to call it, um, are getting more and more distant from each other because our already preconceived notions are being reinforced digitally. And the reason that's all happening is because there's a lot of money in that. If you want a great documentary on this, you can watch The Social Dilemma. I highly recommend it. Now, these bifurcated digital divisions have created a challenge for the church within the last few years. Can I get an amen? (laughs) The church used to be what sociologists called a thick community built on commitment and longevity. But as the walls of our digital echo chambers have grown thicker and thicker, many people have decided that they need to be in a community that reinforces their convictions. Not necessarily a bad thing, but people used to choose churches that reinforce their theological convictions. And now, in the last few years, they're choosing churches more so along the political lines than even theological lines. This is a different type of a world that we're living in. Many people treat church like a book club that we join until they choose a book we don't like. And then we're out. But let me just suggest to you that this isn't the way that Jesus designed it. In fact, in fact, the New Testament church paints a very different picture of what it means to walk together. See, the gospel brings together people who are naturally at odds with one another and calls them family. And calls them family. Not family in the sense of uniformity. Family in the sense of of unity. We are in this together. Listen to the way that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He said, So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of, let's just say it together, church, if you're out in the chapel, I want to hear you all the way over here, members of the household of God. That's like saying, we're we're like one big family. When Jesus came onto the scene, he started to paint this picture and he said, all who did receive him, this is John talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, who gave the right to become, let's say it, church, Children of God. Children of God. Did you know that the familial terms, brothers, sisters, as greetings, are used 65 times in Paul's letters alone to refer to the people of God? To refer to the church. Brothers, sisters. Yeah, because if we're all children of God, then that means we're brothers and sisters, (laughs) Jesus went so far as to say, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, just so we're clear, this did not make him any friends with the religious elites of his day. He was saying something very contrary to what most people would agree with. But Paul also wrote about the way that the gospel breaks down the barriers that we often build in our own human goals. He said this, for Christ Jesus, for in Christ Jesus, you are all, what? Sons of God. Through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're not only in him, but you have put him 
on. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, the value structures of the way that we decide who's better or worse, who's powerful, who's weak, who's in, who's out, that create a a social pecking order, the gospel tears all of those down. This is a family where we all stand on the level ground beneath the foot of the cross, and that means we all stand on level ground with one another as well. Let me say it like this this morning. If you have put on Christ, he has put you into his family. If you've put on Christ, he has put you into his family. And here's the reality, friends. Jesus does not merely call individuals who will separately await the blissful joys of a bodiless heaven. Instead, he forms a community on earth. You might say it like this. God is not just saving souls. He's creating a new family. God is not just saving souls. He's certainly doing that. But he's also creating a new family. In a 2012 blog post, the great author Eugene Peters, I'm sorry, Philip Yancey, was writing about the the narrative, the scriptural narrative, and trying to summarize it. And he said this, in my lifelong study of the Bible, I have looked for an overarching theme, a summary statement, of what the whole sprawling book, speaking of the Bible, is all about. And I have settled on this. You ready for it? Here's Yancey's summary statement of the scriptures. God gets his family back. God gets his family back. Now, based on the health of your family of origin, you might have different feelings about this. Some of you might go, yes and amen. Others might go, hey, I've tried that once, didn't work out so well. Okay? But, but, and, and I understand all of that. I just want you to know, I think Yancey's right. I, I think that that is one of the meta narratives of Scripture that God is calling us together and calling us to Himself. But I think we should start to ask the question what kind of family is this? What kind of family are we? a part of now. I'm so glad you asked that, but in order to answer it, I think we need to go back to the very first family that Jesus constructed. Because in many ways, this is the foundation upon which we stand. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of context. This won't surprise you if you're a student of Jesus, but um, at this point in the Gospels, Jesus is in a little bit of trouble. He's making a few waves. He's healed somebody on the Sabbath, and he's claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. Once again, neither of those are statements that make you any friends. And now, now, He's going to assemble his, what we might call his ride-or-die posse. These are his original 12 apostles that he's calling to himself. And listen, in verse 12, the way that Luke records this. It says, one of those days, Jesus went out on a, to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. 
Now, just two things. Number one, um, I think that scriptures are making this intentional connection between a unified family and a prayerful community. Does, one doesn't happen without the other, okay? You can't have unity if you don't have prayer. But second, I think Jesus knows he needs to spend the entire night praying in order to unify the group he's about to bring together. It says this, verse 13. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. We often call this the the calling of the 12 disciples, but really, this is the appointment of apostles from a larger group of disciples. But these are the 12. Verse 14. And now Luke's going to tell us who he called. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was also called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot. Can you imagine being the other Judas? Right? Where not Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus, but the other Judas. And every time people mention the Judas of the original apostles, you're like, nah, I'm the other Judas. Get no airtime, but I'm the other Judas, right? Um, Whom became, speaking of the other Judas, who became his traitor. Now, what is Jesus' approach in creating his family? Well, he assembles a group of 12 men who wouldn't even follow each other on Instagram to follow as his first apostles. I mean, these are people that would have been at each other's throats. People, if they saw one of them coming down the road, probably would have stepped to the other side. People, if, if one of these guys had an event, they'd probably assemble some sort of picketing line to show up at the event. I mean, these are people who would not normally get along. And I think what Jesus does in calling his original apostles is he's making a statement about his kingdom and about his family. Let me just point out two of these people who are sitting around his table. You have Matthew, who was also named what? Levi, right. And Matthew slash Levi was a tax collector. You probably know that tax collectors were hated amongst the Jewish people, but let me tell you why they were hated. They were hated because they petitioned to Rome to have the right and ability to tax their own people. And so Rome told him a number, you've got to take this much from every single Jewish person. But what every tax collector knew was they could take a little bit more and line their own pockets. So the tax collectors were sellouts. They were people who had betrayed their own country. And then you have Simon, who was called the what? The zealot. There's some debate about when the party of the zealots actually developed. I think the best research would say that Simon actually is a member of this sort of, what do you, if you want to call it a political or social party. But the zealots were people who believed in the national prominence of Israel. They believed so strongly that they tried over and over to organize groups of people to violently overthrow the Roman government. I mean, he was somebody who would have wanted to start a war at the drop of a hat in order to take his country back from Roman rule. Okay. Can you imagine these people sitting around the same table? Some of you are going, yeah, I can. It's called Thanksgiving. It's coming up. (laughs) 
I mean, but really, really. I mean, we've done a lot of talking, and, and, and it's well-founded, and it's really important because of the place and time in which we live. But we've done a lot of talking about what it looks like to have um, a, an ethnic diversity in our church. And we are moving more and more towards that praise be to God. But this is an ideological diversity sitting around the same table. And listen, I've prayed with enough of you. I've talked with enough of you. I've met, I've counseled over this last year, year and a half. So many families are being ripped apart by ideological differences. What do we do about masks? What do we do about vaccines? What do we do about these government mandates? What do we do about, I mean, you fill in the blank, and one person has this thought, the other person has that thought, and it is ripping biological families apart. Imagine what it's doing to churches. I don't know about you, but it gives me some solace to know that Jesus assembled this sort of ragtag, mismatched group of his original apostles. I mean, not only that, you have these ideological differences, but then you have people around this table who are fishermen. They're probably illiterate and they are rough around the edges. You have guys like James and John who earn the nickname Sons of Thunder because they're so hot-headed. So, so much of the time they'd be like, God, don't say that. Can you just take a deep breath? Gain some emotional intelligence, please, James and John. Come on, right? I mean, you have people like Thomas who becomes known as Doubting Thomas. Probably not a fair nickname, but we don't have enough time to go into it today. We have Judas, who Luke just wants to remind us as if we'd forget. He betrayed Jesus. All amongst these original 12. (laughs) And Jesus says, these men are going to be the pillars of a brand new, really awkward family. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying. See, see, being the family of God together, here's my point. Being the family of God together has always been a challenge. It was at the very beginning. It is still today. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah, Yeah. But here's the truth. Putting us together in a diverse family is not for the purpose of frustration, but formation. See, God knows that in bringing us together in a fellowship of what we might call difference, that something unique is going to happen in our midst. It's not easy. It's easier to tap out. It's easier to move to a place or go to a place where there's, there's uniformity that, that really is the foundation of unity. But, but friends, putting us in a diverse family, ideologically different, is not for the purpose of frustration. It's so that God would form us more and more into the image of his son. So if you're frustrated with another person in our church. Don't, this isn't the chance to point him out. I'm looking at you two over in the chapel. It's it. Just take a step back, take a deep breath and say, maybe, just maybe, God, you want to form me through this rather than frustrate me. And my hope is you're asking, Ryan, what might that look like? What might it look like to live into that kind of a family? Well, I'm going to spend the rest of our time together trying to unpack what that might look like. And my hope is that this is really, really practical 
It's not going to be as theological as, as some of the other things we've talked about. My hope is that it's really practical and it gives you some handholds that you can write down. And over the course of this next week or month, you might revisit this and go, okay, so this is what it looks like to be family. My hope is that they're also helpful around your Thanksgiving table. Here's the first thing. Let's just all name for a moment the fact that we have preferences and opinions. Can we do that? Just raise your hand. I have, maybe just say it with me. I have preferences and opinions. I have preferences about things like the way that a toilet paper roll should be loaded onto the spool. There's a, friends, there's a, that may not be an opinion. That might just be right and wrong, okay? Um, I have... I have opinions about the way a dishwasher should be loaded, right? And I like to load my own dishwasher so people don't screw it up, right? Those are preferences and opinions. And I have preferences and opinions about church too. And my guess is so do you. So do you. And you know what? There's nothing new under the sun that has always been the case. It's the reason that Paul writes to the church at Rome and he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over what? Opinions. And you may say, okay, well, Ryan, what were the opinions that they were, qual- that they were quarreling over? Um, things like whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols or whether or not they should practice the Jewish dietary restrictions. Um, they had questions about what day they should worship. And what Paul says is those aren't gospel essentials. So don't quarrel over them. Uh, Here's the invitation that I think Jesus would hold out for us. Hold opinions looser than essentials. Hold opinions looser than essentials. I I love the way that the German Lutheran theologian Rupertus Melenius said it when he said, essentials in unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. But I think one of the challenges for, for, for me, and it might be one of the challenges for you, is to identify when I'm holding an opinion or a preference and when I'm holding an essential. Right? Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes my opinions feel like essentials. You might even say things in your mind, start to retrain yourself by saying things like, I prefer this style of music or worship, but... It's not ordained by scripture. You may even say things like, I think we should do things this way, but there are other people who love Jesus who disagree with me. It might be helpful to repeat some of those phrases because it's easy to assume that our opinion is gospel truth when in fact it's a preference. Or you might even say things like, this is my opinion or my preference, and it's my opinion, but... But I might be wrong. <laughs> Some of you, ooh, <laughs> ooh. Well, yeah, it's true, right? I mean, ultimately, the, the apostles' ideologies were surrendered for Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom of God. And that vision was way bigger than anything they all brought in originally when they sat around that table with him. So we hold opinions looser than essentials. But that leads to a second way that we can make family a reality. There's a recent survey done among, uh, they surveyed 13,000 Americans, and what they found was that 81% of people 
think people are too easily offended. So here's what we're saying. Now, now, they have to be, some of them have to be part of the people who are too easily offended. Right? And I think here's here's the general narrative. When somebody else gets offended, we think they should get over it. When we get offended, we think we're justified. Right? So here's just an invitation to live together in family as the church. What if we get curious instead of getting offended? Get curious instead of getting offended. There's this great quote that I read recently in Scott Saul's wonderful book, A Gentle Answer, and he said this, because some of you are writing that, this slide down. Um, I'm just going to read this quote. He says this, It is because we've been treated with such kindness, this is as Christians, such grace, such gentleness, that we ought to be the most difficult people in the world to offend. What if the world started to look on from the outside looking into the church and go, man, those, those Jesus followers, they're really hard to offend. Like they respond with a, a gentle answer. Or maybe, maybe, maybe they respond in the way of their rabbi. They get curious. How do you get curious when somebody disagrees with you? You ask questions. You ask questions. You, you might ask something like, Well, explain to me how you came to hold that position. How how did you come to that conviction? Not, not, explain to me how you could be so stupid. (laughs) No, no, no. Like, help, unpack it with me. Like, how did you, how did you arrive there? Jesus was brilliant at this, you guys. Did you know that the Gospels record 307 questions that Jesus asked? 307. One of them, one of them, was right after one of his best friends, Peter, has betrayed him. He's hanging on a Roman cross, dying for the sin of the world, and Peter pretends like he doesn't know him. After the resurrection, he meets with Peter, and he asks him this question. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What a poignant question. But in asking the question, here's what he's not saying. He's not saying... um, Peter, how could you do that to me? Peter, what did I ever do to you? Peter, you betrayed me on the moment of my greatest need. He's going, okay, Peter, let's hit reset. Let me me ask some questions. Because in asking questions, you actually start to dig into a person's heart. And remember, as followers of Jesus, our goal is to win people, not to win arguments. And in order to win people, we got to see what's going on inside. Yeah, questions are a great way to get curious. But they're also a way to practice humility, right? Because if we're saying, this is my opinion, I may be right, I may be wrong. We're also saying, in asking a question, how did you come to this conviction? And maybe, just maybe, Jesus might invite me to rethink the way that I see the world also. I love the way that Tim Keller, the great pastor and theologian, put it in a tweet that he put out recently. He said, even if only 20% is true, we can profit from criticism given by people who are badly motivated 
or whom we don't respect. He goes, even if 20% of it's true, I can learn. I can grow. I can get curious instead of getting offended. Next, or third, and this might seem a little bit off at first, but, but please journey with me on this. If we're going to walk together in a different kind of community and create the kind of community that the Matthews and the Simons can be welcomed into, I believe that we have to choose contribution instead of consumption as our, as our base fundamental value or response. I mean, think about it. Think about it. If you get a group of people together and say, we're going out to dinner, you choose a restaurant based on what they have on the menu. You might even look on Yelp to see what kind of reviews they've gotten recently to see if they're a little off their game or if they're dialed in. And when you go to the restaurant, you sit down, you wait to be seated. Somebody comes to you, they bring everything to you. You eat it and you step back and you go, it was pretty good, but it was just okay. Some of you might even pull out a phone and go, three stars, just okay this time. But if somebody invites you over to their house for dinner, my guess is you respond by saying, what do you you say? Yeah, what can I bring? Right? And when you sit down, you don't expect that everything's brought to you. You go and you pick something up and you bring it over to the table and and after it's done you don't sit back and go I've had better it's a little bit dry you might but you won't get invited back that's for free okay okay um yeah you don't go that's a little bit dry or I've had better at their house or what you no you don't because why it's it's about more than the meal right it's about getting together and, and being together there's probably no Yelp review Okay, Paulson's house for dinner, three stars, right? No, no, because the point is very, very different. But the point is driven home by, ah, this is about contribution, not about consumption. What if, well, let me ask you this. Which way do you view the church? Is the church going over to family for dinner where we all bring something or is it more like a restaurant where... We get our needs met. These are two fundamentally different approaches. The Apostle Paul, though, would write to the church at Corinth, and he would say to each, to to each of you, is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There's something deposited into your life that everyone around you needs. And when we take a posture of consumption, we actually cut off the work the Spirit wants to do in and through us for the common good of the rest of our community. So can I just plead with you, Emmanuel Faith? Let's not be passive observers. Let's be passionate participants And what God is doing in and through this body, it may mean joining a life group or an ABF. There's actually going to be handouts as you walk out the door to help you do that. If you'd like to start your own, it's really simple. You can do that. It might mean something like getting involved in serving the body. I think that would perfectly live out 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. It might mean inviting somebody over to your house for dinner. And you know why this is really important? Because when we are invested, it's a lot harder to be critical. 
Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great book, Life Together, wrote, when you pray for a brother or sister, it's a lot harder to hate them. And I thought, oh, Dietrich, you are spot on. So maybe we just write it like this. Maybe we just say, we're going to be people who help make it better rather than getting critical. Isn't this what Jesus does? He enters into the mess. He incarnates himself, takes on flesh and blood to step into the mess to lead us towards God's wholeness and his kingdom. And every time we step into the mess, rather than getting critical, we echo the ethos of the incarnation. Let's contribute, not just consume. And then finally, finally, in preparing for this message, I was, i just be honest with you guys, I was really convicted by the Spirit of God that oftentimes my love is fairly fickle. I love when I assume it's going to be reciprocated. And I just wonder if Matthew and Simon the Zealot ever locked eyes when Jesus said, a new command I give you, that you love one another just as, in the same way. I have loved you, that you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. You're right, they would, because this would be a miracle. If Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector could love each other, it would be a bullhorn to the world around them that Jesus was the Messiah because it would be a miracle. What if we as a group of people decided to pursue agape, unity around agape, which, which means love in the Greek. It's the word Jesus is using there. Rather than affinity. Rather than affinity. Which means that we pursue unity around love, not around agreeing with each other on everything. It means that we pursue unity around love, not around having a common vision of the way everything nationally would play out around us. It means that we pursue unity around love more than we pursue unity around anything else. There's this great line in Dostoevsky's brilliant book, The Brothers Karamazov, where he says this, love in practice is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love and dreams. He goes, it's hard on the ground. And love, you know this, love is is a verb, it's an action. And so what if we choose to love even when? Even when we're hurt, even when we disagree, even when we're wronged and wounded, even when, what if we choose to love even when we know we're right? Yeah, in the New Testament, love looked like praying for one another, doing good toward one another, caring for one another, deferring to one another, honoring one another, and bearing with one another. I think bear with one another is my favorite command in the New Testament because it's such a low bar. It's like some days all you can do is bear with one another. Yep, but you're called to do it. We are called to do it. And what if we choose forgiveness? Because Jesus forgave us. Each time we're wronged, we have an opportunity 
for frustration or formation. And when we choose to forgive, we are formed into the image of God more and more because he is a forgiver. That's why Paul says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. This is a great invitation for us. I'm reminded of what Desmond Tutu wrote when he said, there is no future without forgiveness. I would say that that's true of the church also. Unless we can forgive one another when we are wronged, we have no future. At least not one where we're unified together. And if maybe you've been holding something against someone, your biological family, or in your church family, I think today's the day that Jesus just wants to press on your soul and say, it's time to forgive. That's too big of a weight for you to carry. I read this week that anger is like an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it's stored than to anything in which it's poured. Maybe today's your day. Uh, every other summer, I've had the chance to go up and to speak at Mount Hermon Christian Camp that's in the um, Redwood area of the mountains just outside of Santa Cruz. I mean, if you've ever been to see these just absolutely beautiful trees, you know how massive they are. And I was um, standing, maybe just like this guy, looking up at one of them, when uh, somebody from the camp came up to me and said, Hey, Ryan, do you know how deep their roots are? And I looked up and I went... I'm guessing 20 or 30 feet. And they said, actually, no. They're three to four feet deep. I can tell most of you already knew that. (laughs) And they just sprawl out. Why? But he said this to me after that. He said, Ryan, that's why you almost never see one of these redwoods alone. They find their protection in the community with one another. And I thought, that's it. That's what the church is designed to be like. Friends, we are a family. And that means we recognize that God is bringing us together as family, not just saving us for heaven. And as a family, we are committed to assuming the best, bringing our best, and seeking God's best. And in a country more divided than the Civil War, will be a church more united than ever. Remember, the overarching theme of the scriptures, according to Yancey, God gets his family back. But let's be honest, that family has some warts and some shortcomings and some areas she needs to grow. But so did the original family. Doubters and thieves, sellouts, fishermen, philosophers, all sitting around one table, making up the foundation upon which we stand. So friends, what if, what if we recognized our own digital echo chambers and we expected that there to be people within our church who disagree with us? What if we contributed in in really intentional and practical ways? What if we chose forgiveness every time we were wronged? What if we pursued others in practical ways, loved and forgave even 
when? What if we saw that being in a fellowship of quote-unquote difference, as Scott McKnight said, is part of being formed into the image of Jesus? What if? So would you just take a moment and answer this question? Finish this sentence. This week, I will. This week, I will. Maybe you join a life group or an ABF. Maybe you invite one person over to your house for dinner. Maybe you forgive. Maybe you say, I'm going to pray for this motley crew. (laughs) This week, I will. Let's pray. So, Father... As your children, we're also each other's brothers and sisters. And we'll just admit back to you that sometimes it's hard to live together as family, as the household of God. So I pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would lead us and guide us, shape us and make us and mold us. In the areas that we're frustrated, God, would you form us? And in the areas that we think we're right, would we ask good questions and invite other people in. Lord, I pray that more and more you would allow us to reflect your vision of what your church would be like. A group of people united around a commitment to love. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.